Good morning, beloved. How's everybody? Excited? Pumped? How about that for worship? Taking us into the presence of God. I'm going to uh, encourage us today to allow God's Word to do its work, and it will. We all know that all the way through the Bible, God prophesied the coming of His Son because of a broken relationship in Genesis between God and man, a plan instituted before the foundation of the world to restore that relationship. So it's about presence. It's about position before God. And He is going to do a wonderful work in our hearts and lives today. And so in the ministry of Jesus, when he is going about his day-to-day activities, he's proclaiming the things of the kingdom, and he knows he's heading to a cross. He knows that he's going to lay his life down for us, and he does, and he's buried in the tomb, but on the third day, you can't keep him in the tomb, and he's raised from the dead. And he appears to some disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is about 10 kilometers outside of Jerusalem, and he comes alongside of these two disciples, and they're discussing everything that just happened in Jerusalem, and he says to them, what happened? Could you imagine? What happened? And they say to him, like, dummy up. The whole city's in an uproar, and he says, about what? And so they begin to talk to him about what happened, And then he says to them, are you ever slow to understand all the prophecies about the Messiah? And then he reveals himself to them shortly after. But he starts with a man named Moses, and he starts walking them through the Scriptures. And they said, our hearts were on fire as he was describing himself. How would you like to be at that Bible study where he unpacks his word like that? And the disciples are just amazed. I want to start today. I'm going to do a little, uh, this is my Bible in a moment. But the Apostle Paul eventually carries on this tradition of sharing. And so in God's Word in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... You hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And then he says these powerful words. I delivered to you of first importance. So he's laying a foundation of what's essential here. He said of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for us, for our sins, in accordance with what? With the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he said, and he appeared to me as one untimely born. So Paul understands the value of the Scriptures. Jesus understands the value of the Scriptures. And you and I understand the value of the Scriptures. So I'm going to get you to stand with me for a moment. You thought you weren't in a liturgical church. Every time I stand up to preach, I always remember this is my Bible. 
I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. And I can do what it says I can do. And today I'm ready to receive into my heart the ever-living, everlasting, incorruptible seed called the Word of God. Holy Spirit, speak to my heart about my position and your presence in my life as you build your house in me, in my family, and in this place. In Jesus' name, the beloved said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue the series on building your house, and I want to talk about the person that Jesus mentioned when he was speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He took them back to the beginning and started speaking about a man named Moses. Moses has a lot to teach us about acquiring presence in your life and living out of presence. Psalm 127 tells us that our ministry year theme is, Lord, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so when we begin to look at Moses, we realize he is one of the premier Jewish leaders. He's a man of God, indeed a man, but nonetheless with strengths and weaknesses like each of us. He's about to learn that he's not sufficient in himself for the task of leading the Hebrew people out of slavery into freedom. And with, he, he will learn that with God all things are possible. He's going to learn because he's got free will, and you have free will, and I have free will, he's going to learn that leaders are called of God to do certain things. He's going to learn that leaders can also resist God. When I say leaders, I mean all of us, because we're leading just by the fact that we're out of the world and we're in the kingdom. Our lives are an example to others. And so he's going to learn that we need to build teams around us because we can't do this on our own. And God is going to position Aaron and Miriam by Moses' side. That's his brother and his sister. And later on in the journey, he's going to bring Joshua into the page, and he's going to help fulfill the next step in the journey that Moses begins. Uh, he's going to learn that uh, every one of us have limited vision, and God will only acquire a certain thing of your life and my life for a season, and then we pass the baton to the next generation in the line. But we have an opportunity, and during the life of the opportunity, we take advantage of the opportunity, and we sow in through our spiritual walk with God, everything that he's drawing out of us for his plans and his purposes. There is an amazing lesson later on in Moses' life that we may touch on. It's found in Numbers 20. And there was a rock that was following them in the wilderness, and it provided water. And in one instance, he was to speak to the rock, and it would pour the water out for the Hebrew people along with their livestock. But later on in the journey the people start grumbling and complaining. Now, you never have done that. I know. Never have you ever grumbled or complained in your walk with God. And yet, these people following Moses get crabby. And he goes to God in prayer and says, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They need water. And what does the Lord say? Just speak to the rock. How many know that sounds easy? But he's an impatient man. He's fed up with them. He's frustrated. And so he goes, and instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock. 
that one act of disobedience prohibits him from going into the promised land. You think about it. We're learning that when we deal with God, he's God, we're not. He requires obedience from us, not sacrifice. And obedience is essential because we're on mission with him, and it's his message. And what God says, Moses, you dishonored me in the eyes of the people. That would have been a knife through his heart because everything in Moses was to please God and honor God. But in his humanity, he let that moment of impatience overwhelm him, and he functioned not out of his spirit but out of his emotion. And the next thing you know, he's got a problem on his hands. But what does God do? Sometimes when a, when a leader fails and a leader does something like that in dishonoring God, God still honors his people, and he allowed water to flow. So as far as the people were concerned, Moses was still doing what God had called them to do. But as far as God was concerned, Moses had just dishonored him. It's an awesome thing for you and I to walk with God. We're not to treat that walk lightly. And so Moses learns some very important lessons at that stage. He learns about his need for God's presence all the time and the power that is needed to accomplish the task. It wasn't that Moses struck the rock. It's that just by simply speaking what God had told him to do, water would come. But Moses adds to the equation and ends up in trouble with God. Later on in the story of Moses in Exodus 33, we're going to learn that here's a cry throughout the journey of Moses' life. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Lord, I've learned enough to know that if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. I have no power within myself to accomplish what it is you're calling me to do. So, Lord, let your presence be with me. How many know presence is central to Christianity? God gave them a sign. Every single day there was a cloud that followed them. Wow. Protected them from the blazing sun and gave them a visible witness of his presence in their midst. And then when they would lay their head in their tents at night, they would look out and they'd see a pillar of fire. His presence was there externally. But in God's heart, that's not enough. He's going to move through history so that that cloud and that fire is replaced by the person of the Holy Spirit and dwells in us, not outside of us, but in us. God is concerned about his presence in our lives. When I looked at the life of Moses, I realized there were three qualities that I thought were interesting in him. Number one, his sense of justice. He's got a burden on his heart for his people, but he's not quite sure what all that entails. Second thing is his willingness to meet the needs of others. And last but not least, he realizes that as a shepherd, he's going to have to shepherd through some adversity. So his first, the sense of justice, he was able to practice that for 40 years in Pharaoh's house, no matter the consequences. He was all that in a bag of chips, as the Brits say, and he thought that with these 40 years in Pharaoh's house, I'm really something. Hmm. But one impulsive act 
is about to change everything for him. And he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, and what rises up in him is everything that has taken place in his life to that point. Do you know that you have a backstory and I have a backstory? And that backstory helps us in our present situations. But you think of Moses. He's born in Egypt, but he's a Hebrew. He lives in Pharaoh's house, and his mama is going to raise him up in Pharaoh's house. First of all, because Pharaoh puts an edict out to kill all the children because he's paranoid that the Hebrews are getting too strong and he wants all the baby boys killed. Kind of sounds familiar to what Jesus goes through. Jochebed, who's his mother, puts him in a little basket and covers it with pitch and sends it down the Nile River. Wouldn't you know it? Pharaoh's daughter is out bathing in the Nile, and the little basket comes by. And so she reaches out, and his name means to be drawn in. And she draws in the basket, and her heart is touched, and she wants that little child to be with her and to raise that little child up. And in the coincidences of God, Jochebed, Moses' real mother, gets to train him up in Pharaoh's house. So think of the conflict that's going on. First of all, he's threatened with death, even as a child. He's abandoned by his family. He's sent off in a basket, and then he's adopted into Pharaoh's household. So if you think your life is rough, wait till you are abandoned by your family. Wait till you become a basket case. And then you're adopted into something that is totally foreign to you, and God is still at work. Aren't you glad that God knows what he's doing? We look at it and we think, oh, man, this is impossible. And later on, we hear with God, all things are possible. The songs we were singing today, I reflected on some of those. I watched my mother and my father dedicate me to Christ at 30 years old sitting on a couch. I didn't ask them to hold me in their arms. I just said, I want to be dedicated, Dad, Mom. My father was really tough, hard to get along with, very religious. And when I told him that I'd become a Christian, he said, you've been a Christian your whole life. And I said, I haven't. I've been religious my whole life, but not a Christian. And he was in an uproar about it. And then I had the privilege of leading my mom, leading my dad to Christ. I remember when my brother Craig was celebrated his 68th birthday yesterday when he killed two people in a drug deal that went sour. And he went to jail. And I'd prayed for him for 10 years. I said, God, touch my brother's heart. Touch my brother's heart. And I had invited a pastor to go and visit him in jail, and he gave his heart to Christ. And then he called me on the phone, and, you know, you get a collect call. And he called me, and he said, praise the Lord, brother. And our first reaction, my first reaction was, stop mocking. And he said, no, no, praise the Lord. I said, yeah, yeah, praise the Lord, sarcastically for sure. And he said, Barry, praise the Lord. I said, Craig, what are you talking about, praise the Lord? He said, I gave my life to Christ last night. That pastor you sent in 
I gave my heart to Jesus. Part of me said, I don't know. He's, he's got something up his sleeve here. Because every time he called in the past, it was always for money. And I just thought he's buttering me up. But guess what? He gave his heart to Jesus. And he's been serving him ever since. He did his time in jail. It was a second-degree charge. He didn't plan on doing it. Things went sour, and the whole thing blew up in his face. I remember sitting in the, in the jail cell with him one time, and he said to me, I think I can get away with it. There are no witnesses. And I said, Craig, I don't need to know what happened that day. You know what happened that day. But if you're following Jesus... The last thing you want to do is look over your shoulder the rest of your life and be caught. Tell the truth. So Joyce and I decided to go to his trial, and it was over in Hull. And we were 10 minutes late because of parking and all the problems of getting there. We get to the courtroom, and there's nobody in the courtroom. His name's on the door, but there's nobody in the courtroom. So I go down to the clerk, and I said, I'm here to see the case for Craig Boucher. And he said, well, it's already over. I said, what do you mean it's over? And he said, well, he pled guilty. And my heart rejoiced because at that moment, I, that moment, I knew that he was a Christian. I knew that he was going to take responsibility for what he had done, and he was going to serve his time no matter how much time he had to serve. He had said to me many times, Barry, you have no idea if I plead guilty what that's going to cost me. And I said, Craig, it'll be much more costly if you don't tell the truth. And to this day, he is walking with God. So when we sing, don't tell me God can't do it. He put our marriage together, put our lives back together again. I mean, God is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do. And that's the challenge you and I have. And so Moses is in that same situation in his life. In this one act in his heart and his life, he creates this major problem for himself. And I want to read it from Exodus chapter 2. It's the backstory of his life. And as you're sitting here today and as you're listening, I want you to know there's a whole world going on inside of you that God knows every detail. He knows where we struggle. He knows where we're in anguish. He knows where we're rejoicing. He knows the plans, the dreams, all of the things going on inside of us. That world inside, he wants to build that house to bring him honor and to bring him glory and to bring you the greatest peace that you've ever known in your life. So Exodus 2 says it this way. One day Moses had grown up. He went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Remember, mama's whispering in his ear, every day he's growing up, you're a Hebrew. And here are the oral traditions. And she begins to recant to him all of the things that are going on in, in history about not only the Egyptians, but the Jewish people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, killed him. And hit him in the sand. And when went out the next day, there were two Hebrews who were struggling together. And he said to the, the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? <laughs> we always like to point fingers at people that are doing the same things we're doing. And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Pharaoh's ultimate authority in the land. Moses has lived with him for 40 years. And knows that when Moses does what he does, Pharaoh's going to act, going to put and impose a death sentence on him, even though he's raised in Pharaoh's own household. And so Moses is going to run away. He fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. And so here he is running away from a, a problem. I want you to know that he has a genuine burden on his heart for his people. That's right, but his actions are wrong. He's learning you can't do God's will in your own strength. You do it as led by the Spirit of God. And Moses now is in the wilderness of Midian, and he gets adopted into Jethro's family. And as he's adopted into Jethro's family, he starts taking care of all the sheep out in the wilderness. He enters God's university of reformation, which includes the renewing of his mind and his heart in the wilderness. He has had 40 years in Egypt, and now God is going to take Egypt out of him and begin to work in his heart and life the things that are needed for Moses to accomplish the will that God has for his life. And so while in the wilderness, God reveals himself to Moses. Aren't you glad sometimes that your worst action brings you to a place of total dependence and God then shows up? I mean, you think of his past. He, he's a murderer. He's running away. He's hiding. He's a fugitive. He's on the lamb. And he's out in the wilderness now. He's no longer in the palace. He's gone from this place of position to this place now of just shepherding sheep. Something really important happens. Moses is walking around with the sheep, doing what he normally does, and God gets his attention. There's a bush, and it's on fire. Not unusual in the wilderness with dryness of bushes. They do sometimes ignite and this one is burning, but it's not being consumed. And Moses walks, makes a turn, walks over towards it. I want you to know when God starts moving on your heart and life, you got to turn towards him. you got to turn away from where you are to him. And Moses turns to him, and as he turns aside to see, God calls him out of the bush and calls him by name. You imagine a bush talking to you? Tell that one to your friends. Yeah, I was out yesterday when Pine Tree was talking to me. Where are they going to put you? Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. This is God speaking to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you were standing is holy ground. Can I just remind you that when you step in a building like this that is dedicated to the presence of God, this is holy ground. It's not because of the building. It's because of his presence. It wasn't because of the burning bush. It was because of his presence. And God says, I want you to take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I want your feet firmly planted on holy ground because I'm about to do something in your heart and life. And he said, I'm the God of your father. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. How do you think Moses saw himself at that point in the journey? As a fugitive, as a runaway, as a murderer. How could you, God, even be concerned about me? But God sees you differently than you see yourself. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people that are in Jesus. I've heard the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Sometimes we don't think God is touched by our infirmities, but he is. Everything that touches your heart touches his heart. He cares about us. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and all the otherites. What's he saying? Moses, here's the plan. I'm laying it out before you. I'm going to do this. And I want you to join me in the task. I want you to come along and be my representative to the people. But I'm going to do this. Later on, it's the same word that Joshua was given. I'm going to send you into the land, but I've already defeated the enemy for you. So be strong and be of good courage. But Moses is like you and I. He has a whole bunch of excuses. Even though the bush is burning, the presence of God is there, his sandals are off, and God is speaking to him. He has excuses, five of them. And he says, Lord, excuse number one, who am I? And I'm sure the Lord said, oh, shut up. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I'm calling you, and I'm going to equip you to do what I've called you to do. Excuse number two, who am I to say is sending me? A bush? Now, you tell them my name is I am, the same as we tell them Jesus Christ has sent us into all the world. Excuse number three, what if they don't believe me? Some will, some won't. That shouldn't stop you. Just keep moving forward. Excuse number four, but I'm not a good speaker. I stutter. Who made your mouth? If you're going to stutter, I'm going to let your brother Aaron speak for you. In other words, that excuse doesn't pass. And number five, <laughs> this is the big one. This one shatters all of us all the time. I'm not qualified. Send somebody else. And God would whisper in his ear, I'm the qualifier. Joyce and I were separated. God put our marriage back together again. We were barely two years old in the Lord, and he called us to pastor. <laughs> I said, you what? You want me to pastor? What is that? I had no idea what that was all about. None whatsoever. Still don't. It's only been 40 years. But he says, I'll qualify you, and I'll train you, and I'll equip you, and I'll put you through all kinds of tests so your dependence is never on yourself, but it's always on me, and I'll put my spirit in your life 
and he will lead you and he will guide you. He will teach you. He will comfort you. He will be your advocate. He will be everything that qualifies you to do what I'm calling you to do. And then it's like, oh, God, then so be it. Let it happen. So Moses goes into God's internship program. And this second quality is that even though he sees the needs of the people, now he's going to learn to see them through God's eyes. It's going to be totally different from him now. And God wants to deliver the Hebrews from 400 years of slavery and bring them as a people back into relationship with himself. This is going to be a long haul. Uh, they've been in captivity now for 400 years. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham a long time before, saying that I'm going to not only give you a land, I'm going to give you a, a group of people that in Abraham, this covenant relationship is going to allow this blessing to go to the whole earth, not just amongst the Jewish people, but to the whole earth. And they go in the land, but a famine drives them out of the land, and they end up in Egypt and 400 years later. So while they're in Egypt, I want you to tuck this one in your heart. Does anybody know how old Canada is in 2021? 153 years old. That's all. We're just 153. America is only 245 years old. So you take everything that you know about Western Canada, I mean, Western nations like Canada the United States, and think of all of the values and all of the traditions and all of the things that make us who we are, and then suddenly God is going to decide to lead you away from all of this, and he's going to reformat your mind. He's going to change your hard drive. Think of how hard it would be if we said, let's cancel Halloween. Let's cancel Christmas. Let's cancel all the New Year's Eve parties and Valentine's Day and the Easter Bunny, and let's change all those values that are very much a part of our culture, and let's do something absolutely new. And so what does God do? He starts working in Moses' heart, and the ten plagues that caused them to be released from Egypt are the ten gods that Egyptians rely on, and God systematically destroys every one of their gods so that he might be exalted in the midst of the people. And out they go from that, and now they're going to spend a tithe. They've been in captivity for 400 years. Now they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And while they're wandering in the wilderness, Moses writes the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why? Because God wants to teach them and train them how to think kingdom life. Even the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai were written so that they would know the very first commandment. You had a whole range of gods in Egypt. You only have one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and have no other gods before me. That's the power of a transformation that is taking place in the renewing of their minds so they begin to live differently. And God takes them out of Egypt, and now it's 40 years of taking Egypt out of them. Quite a process when you go into internship with God. And they're going to learn that there are two things that God always has on his heart for human beings. Number one is their present condition. 
Number two is their future destination. God is concerned about that because your heart could stop beating just like that. And you need to know that if your heart stopped beating here, it would start beating in glory. Why? Because we are eternal. And we are going to be either in the presence of God or away from the presence of God eternally. We can't get away from that. So we go from life to life. And the challenge for Moses is to understand what it is that God's doing, that he cares about the present condition of the children of Israel as they wander in the wilderness, but he also cares about their future destination. He wants them in the promised land because he gave that promise to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill it. If you look at any kind of biblical prophecy concerning the end times, you begin to see that God is faithful to his promises. Israel is back in the land in 1948. The state of Israel was declared, and God just simply moving all the chess pieces together. And what he's done in the past, he will do in the present, and he's going to do in the future according to what he has written in his word. That's why it's so vitally important. Jesus said it this way. I want you to think with me for just a moment. If you were a Jeff Bezos and you owned Amazon and you were the richest man in the whole world, or if you were a Stephen Jobs that owned Apple or Elon Musk with Tesla or Bill Gates with Microsoft or any other person that has wealth in this world and position and status and all of that, Moses had everything at his disposal. But God said that's not your present condition. It's your eternal destiny that I'm concerned about. And Jesus says it this way, what will it profit a man or a woman or a young person if they gain the whole world and they forfeit their soul? What shall it a man give in return for his soul? So Jeff Bezos goes to bed tonight and his heart stops beating and he says to Jesus, but I'm Jeff Bezos and I'm the richest man in the whole world. What would Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Your soul is of more value than the wealth of the whole world. And we can't even comprehend that. Why? Because your soul's eternal. And stuff is just stuff. You're going to leave your stuff for someone else to play with your stuff. Joyce is trying to get me to clean the basement. And I'm saying to her, but sweetie, when I'm gone, you can play all the cassette tapes of my voice. And she goes, dear Jesus. When Moses lived in Pharaoh's house, he had an Egyptian perspective on life. But as a Hebrew, he was living in tension. Our identity is being challenged every day in the same way that his identity was being challenged in the day. He was in Pharaoh's house, but not of Pharaoh's house. He was a Hebrew. That's what his identity was. But everything around him was challenging that identity, and it was trying to superimpose itself on Moses. But Moses would have none of it. You and I are being challenged every day especially in our culture today where identity 
is supposed to be from our relationship to God and from our family who are focused on what's best for us. But now we're facing an onslaught of identity-altering ideas in our culture. Joyce and I, when we got back together again, we said we really screwed up, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord together. We said our kids are going to be in the house of the Lord every week. We are going to train them up the way we were not trained up so that they can have a chance at life. How many know as a parent you have to lead your family sometimes because as they moved into their teenage years, and all the parents went, we, we've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. They struggled with their identity. They struggled with church. They struggled with, i got to go listen to my father preach. He preaches all the time at the house anyway. i got to go listen to that more. And so in their heart of hearts, they wrestled through that until their identity was clear in Christ. And we as parents just simply prayed through led them, protected them, and said, you're going to be with us in the house of the Lord every Sunday, and whether we're preaching or not, this is important for us. We need the course corrections every week. We need the Word of God to be fresh in our hearts. And we need to know that when we sit there and somebody's preaching, nobody's told the preacher what's going on in our life, but God does. And preacher says something that puts his finger on our hearts, and God allows change to come. Why? Because he knows everything going on inside of you today. And he's concerned about your present condition, but he's also concerned about your final destiny. And he wants your destiny fulfilled, the calling that he's placed upon your life. And so today we're confronted on social media in particular with identity politics. Issues of race and gender and sexuality, all kinds of things taking place in our culture. We're in Egypt, but we're not of Egypt. We're kingdom people. And these modern ideas challenge who we are, and they challenge what we believe. In social media, for example, it's not about sharing ideas, but it's a place now that is shaping identity in people's lives. If you agree with a post, you're affirmed. If you disagree, you're canceled. That's the kind of culture you and I are living in. If Moses were here today with us, he would say, I understand. I've been there. I've seen what Egypt did. And Moses lived in this tension, but his identity as a Hebrew was rooted in God's purposes, God's plan, God's righteousness, and he wanted to live out the burden that God had placed on a heart and life, but not in his own strength, in the power of God. His ability to lead worked not only under adverse conditions, but it worked positively as a shepherd who really cared for and loved God's people. You and I reap what we sow. And this is important to understand because as we live in our world, there's lots of injustice. But if we meet injustice with injustice, we do an injustice. We're to come in the opposite spirit to the culture opposite spirit is the peace of God, the promises of God, the presence of God. We bring his presence into situations, sometimes by just being peaceful, just being quiet and not railing on and not fighting back, but just begin to realize, Lord, 
You promised us peace. Years ago, I struggled when I said, Lord, I'd love to have gifts like Billy Graham. I'd love to have gifts like Morcerello. I'd love to have gifts like whoever because I wanted to be that kind of a person. The Lord said, I gave you a deposit of peace. And I thought, Lord, it doesn't seem to be enough. And then he whispered in my heart, do you know what people would give for a moment of peace? Thank you, Lord. Your peace you gave me, I receive it. I stand in it. I enjoy it. I'm going to live in it. Moses said it. If your presence will not go with me, don't bring me up from here. Embrace his presence in your life. It's going to do everything that God is calling your life to accomplish. He will do it by his presence, by his promises, by his power, on his time, and by his spirit, he will lead you and guide you every single day. God's at work to change our perspective in life and ultimately our destination.